0: Hey everyone, this is the health network podcast. It's a space to connect all different health professionals to provide the best possible care for our patients. It's also a podcast to empower listeners to prevent health problems. And I'm your host, Dr. Marcus. Hi everyone. For today, we have Dr. Katie Theodore, Dr. Katie, she's been a dentist, private and public and she's also done a lot of research to improve the public dental healthcare system and she's been involved in a lot of policy and she's really interested in value-based healthcare and I think she's going to play a really big role to improve the public dental health system and also in the broad scheme of all different health. She's really into prevention and also integrating different health professionals so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today dr katie thank you dr marcus and so firstly to get started how did you get into dentistry
1: so when i was in high school my mum asked me to write a list of features that i wanted my job to have and at the top of the list was um financial security But I also really was maths and science oriented at high school. I wanted to do a job. I went to high school in Tasmania and I love Tasmania. And I wanted to do a job that would contribute to the needs of the community down there. And at the time, uh, Tasmania was struggling to get enough dentists to come and, and live and work there. And I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to be able to travel for work and go overseas for conferences and things like that. And I wanted to work nine to five, Monday to Friday, wasn't really interested in shift work or working across Christmas and things like that. And when my mom read my list of features that I wanted my job to have, she handed it back and said straight away, go be a dentist. And so then I did my grade 10 work experience with my dentist, John Pickup in Launceston and uh, yeah, thought it was fascinating and was just invested straight away in, in that idea
0: yeah. Wow, nice. <laughs> and then also, so you worked in both private and public?
1: Sure. In Australia, we all train in the public system. And I found the last year of university challenging in not being able to practice or justify, I guess, a lot of the treatments that we had been taught to do in the teaching environment. And I was really excited to get into private practice. And I moved to the Gold Coast, where my best friend from high school had ended up living. And in my first four years out of university, I was sort of back and forth between um, northern New South Wales, southern Queensland and Tasmania in a couple of different practices. And yeah, I got a lot out of my I, I had some really good mentors. I only ever worked in small businesses where it was just me and the principal um, dentist who was also the owner of the practices that I worked at. And I was really lucky to have some really good mentors in those first couple of years.
0: Ah, yes. Nice. And then, so you started to work more public dental? Yeah, so
1: I had a boyfriend in the Gold Coast who was a mental health caseworker and passionate social justice advocate, and he really influenced me a lot, really changed my mind about where I wanted my energy to go, and around that time, uh, my same friend who I moved to Queensland to be closer to moved to Melbourne, and so I followed her again and decided to go full-time in public at that point and yeah I started identifying really strongly as a public health advocate at that time myself and I've been yeah staunchly a public health sector supporter since then the eight years I've been in Melbourne and I've done some teaching and then yeah found myself into the non-clinical roles that I've had as part of my last two jobs.
0: Okay. and so what made you go from working in public to then working in the research area and policy? Mm.
1: I, one of the reasons why I was ready to leave private was because I, uh, there were two aspects of private practice that were starting to really bug me. And, mm-hmm. and I describe as sort of turning me into a jaded private practicing dentist mm-hmm. where I hated when cost affected my patient's treatment decisions Yeah, when, you know, especially treating people my own age that really hadn't been to the dentist since they were, In high school and when their parents were paying for them and, you know, spend those early couple of first adult years out on their own taking care of themselves and they've got their diet changes and their habit changes and Mm. no parents riding their back about brush your teeth every night and then they avoid the cost of going to visit the private dentist and then develop a toothache after, you know, 5 or 10 years of being in charge of their own health
2: mm. and then
1: coming to see me and at that point, you know, when you've got a tooth when you're presenting because you've got a toothache, the treatment to manage a toothache and keep the tooth in your mouth generally is root canal and a crown, which is, you know, like $3000 a pop for someone in their young adulthood often was just the deal breaker when it came to what to do and i had so many people choose an extraction over root canal and crown to to retain a tooth,
2: mm, and it, it was just breaking.
1: Oh, yeah. it was breaking my heart. And mm-hmm. I thought that by working in the public sector, where that where cost of treatment wasn't going to be the deciding factor, would mm. be more satisfying for me. So yes. that was one aspect. But also, you know, I I had high expectations about what i was going to earn in private practice and i was really lucky that i graduated at a time when the chronic disease scheme Mm. was being heavily utilized in the private sector and it meant that i had a lot of patients i was booked out you know the two weeks in advance which was the perfect amount to be Mm. busy and confident that you had you know, patients coming in the door, but not so overbooked that you were having trouble squeezing in emergencies or moving around your book for um, patient convenience and, and personal convenience. And I was making good money being a good dentist. And I felt really good about that. But inevitably, there was always pressure from my employers to earn more or be more productive, or maybe Mm. you could try this strategy, or maybe you could do more crowns, or maybe you'd like to develop your interest in cosmetic work. And I was quite rejecting of that pressure to -hmm. to do more, earn more, because I felt like I was working hard and doing a good job and making good money. And that suited me just fine. And the pressure started to really get to me. And it didn't seem to matter when I moved practices, that pressure seemed to reappear inevitably all the time. So I was looking forward to that, you know, sort of having that aspect of things not pressuring me in the public sector. Yeah. little did I know that the public sector <laughs> productivity pressure is actually even worse what I thought I was escaping in private practice actually mm. came down on me really hard in public and I Could frequently
0: the system of the oh sure public dental yeah. funding
1: so in Victoria we get paid based on DWAS so the DWAS is an acronym that stands for dental weighted activity unit and it's aligned with our ADA system of coding treatment, you know, coding dental activity Mm. treatment with the three numbers. And so every treatment code has an associated value, um, monetary value. And so the more codes you perform, the more funding the place where you work gets to receive from the government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, (laughs) there is no perfect funding model in health, as far as I can tell anywhere in the world. So they've all got their drawbacks and things. But my biggest issue with the funding scheme when I moved to Melbourne and started working full time in the public sector was that the waiting seemed to be heavily treatment oriented. So I went to university in Adelaide where they've had a reputation for many years for being very conservative and teaching and promoting minimally invasive and minimal intervention sort of practice. Right. So if you can justify not doing a restoration, then that's what you would do. You would focus on the more preventative and minimally invasive things. But that didn't reflect well in my personal productivity measures at when measured by d was it looked mm. like i was being less productive than my colleagues by doing less invasive treatment so and so i
0: and less extractions I, yeah.
1: yeah i put a lot of effort into trying to educate my patients yeah. into and you know in the public sector too there people have very very complex social circumstances that they're coming mm-hmm. from and medic medically some of the most complex patients I've ever seen, you know, like significantly more complex than the patients I was treating in the private sector. So Hmm. you've already got that extra sort of fear and complexity around managing a medically complex patient. And,
2: Hmm.
1: and then you're trying very hard to make sure that your interventions and your conversations and your rapport is all based around how can I help you? How can I put my energy Best into our time together so that you get the most out of our interaction. And I, mm. I thought that that was understanding my patient, understanding their circumstances, understand where they're at with their personal health and encouraging them to make healthy behavior changes, but that was not reflected well in, in the productivity measures. And so in my performance management meetings, I would get criticized and, you know, com- comparatively performing poorly compared to my colleagues. And I, while I had a lot of support from my manager who, the senior dentist who Mm -hmm. was very empathetic about my passion. Yeah. yeah, And approach.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, she, she didn't, wasn't really able to argue on my behalf too strongly with the, uh, the layer of management above her who managed sort of the financial running of the clinic and things. And Basically, it wasn't sustainable for them to keep a dentist like me employed if Mm. I wasn't making the money that they then used to pay me. Like I couldn't, you know, I wasn't earning my way. Yeah, Yeah, it's
0: challenging because you can be like educating a lot of patients to actually prevent a lot more problems, but then you have to do the procedures to get the funding. So yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. it was, it, it seemed tragic. And so I kept trying to escalate my concerns up the chain of command and said like, you know, I I will back myself in this Mm. approach to practice. Who do I need to talk to, to complain about this? Bit, yeah. who do I need to talk to who's got the control to change this yeah and I guess eventually my concerns got escalated to DHSV which is the mm. lead agency in Victoria who distribute the government's funding to the public agencies in the state and they said yeah we recognize that there's a problem with the funding model why don't you come mm. work for us and help change it okay. and make a difference and that's how I ended up working at DHSV
0: wow and so tell us about your role at DHSV
1: So I came on board at the same time as Martin Hall, who is still in the position of chief oral health officer. He'd been the senior dentist and dental program manager at North Richmond Community Health, which was widely lauded as sort of the most progressive public dental agency in the state. And so I used to, I developed a relationship with Martin Hall um, before we started working together at DHSV, and I said, Martin, how do you how do we implement a, a preventative approach in the public sector dental world in Victoria? Mm-hmm. And he said, basically, you have to ignore the rules that come with the funding, and mm-hmm. it it seemed very complicated to me because I was never trained in any sort of fiscal or business management. <laughs> at yeah. all. So uh, it was hard. I was trying to teach myself how the funding model worked at the same time as investigating different ways of doing things, that makes sense. So <laughs> Martin and I both got invited to roles at DHSV to help change the model of care and change the funding model that would complement a more preventive approach model of care. And on the first day of work at DHSV, I got handed a stack of 10 articles, academic articles that were from Michael Porter, who is an economist who Mm -hmm. writes and works for the Harvard Business School. And it was all about funding of healthcare. And he was coining this term value-based healthcare, which was all about how in health, competition exists at the wrong level Mm-hmm. So in whether you're talking public or private, when you have a cost-saving activity, it doesn't benefit the patient and it doesn't generally benefit the employer. It most often benefits the insurer, which mm-hmm. is the wrong. Well, the extension of that theory was that if we keep going this way, then healthcare is going to continue continue to be cheaper for insurers to pay for and outcomes are going to continue to decrease. And so the way to manage this competition at the wrong level is to m- change the way we measure what successful treatment looks like and focus on what the outcome of treatment is rather than the amount of treatment that we're providing.
0: Wow, that's exactly Yeah.
1: It took a long time of reading and thinking and talking with my colleagues and mentors about what the implications for that were in dentistry and specifically public dentistry in Victoria. But I'm a convert for sure now.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so you've done a lot of research on looking at a system and then what have you found with your research?
1: I think one of the most challenging things that we sort of realised was that some people, and, you know, we were able to draw a lot on smoking cessation as, Mm -hmm. um, as a public health problem, because there's been a lot of research put into what strategies can help people stop smoking. And the extension of that is what can, what interventions exist to help people make other health-related behavior changes. And, as people may or may not be familiar with in the smoking cessation world is you sort of have to measure where someone's at in terms of their readiness to change mm. initially because there's no use providing someone with a lot of support or education or resources about quitting smoking if they don't want to quit smoking yeah you're better off targeting better off in terms of you know making efficient use of your time and energy and resources focusing on the people who are ready to change and are motivated and want to quit and meeting people sort of where they're at on their health journey and taking sort of care of themselves. And there's a broad spectrum, obviously, mm-hmm. of people who are who w- motivated and want to make change and need the support to do so mm-hmm. versus the people who aren't that they have other things in their lives that are more a priority than making those health related behavior changes.
0: So with the value-based public dental mm-hmm. health model, then mm-hmm. I suppose, would you have like questionnaires that you give to the patient and then that'll like track uh, what their readiness level is in terms yeah. of the smoking cessation or reducing sugar and oral hygiene? Yeah. And like that?
1: yeah, definitely. And I started to put together a sort of mind map of all the things that affect someone's readiness. And mm. so it's a combination of the knowledge, you know, to know that sugar results in a breaking down of the tooth structure or yeah. that acid from the soft drinks results in a, in erosion that affects the tooth structure or that flossing removes the plaque that leads to gum disease and things like mm-hmm. that. So first you have to figure out where someone's at knowledge wise. Do they, yeah. do they know these things or do they not know these things? Cause that sort of step one is introduce the ideas to yeah. the people that, our clients and patients. And then the second thing is establishing whether they have the skills to implement the changes. And then the third thing is establishing whether their beliefs and motivation are aligned with those changes as well. So Mm. as an example, someone has to believe that they are capable of flossing their teeth every day before they're gonna start flossing their teeth every day. But they also have to believe that flossing will result in keeping their teeth longer. And then they also have to believe that keeping their teeth longer is a good thing or an important thing. Hmm. So there's all these aspects of information that we want to garner from an interview with a patient to understand where they're at, to then figure out where the gaps are where our energy and knowledge is best targeted to support them in those behavior changes yeah
0: and so how do we apply this in public dental
1: well we start with one of the new aspects of the model of care is an introductory session and part of the introductory session is what they call shared medical appointments in other parts of the world so it's a economically, they sort of figured out if a consultant or a professional is seeing eight patients a day for an hour, and they're broadly repeating the same messages to eight patients for an hour over the course of a day, it might be more cost effective for that professional to get all eight patients together in a room and say the same thing yeah. to all of them at the same time. And Obviously, we're operating in a resource-scarce environment. So anything that we can do that's more cost-effective that doesn't um, negatively impact the outcome of care is going to be um, something that we're interested in investigating. And so introductory sessions, the idea is to get a a few patients together. And there's other benefits besides Mm -hmm. cost-saving of the professional's time. Patients benefit from being... Hearing the answers to each other's questions and things like mm-hmm. that, and realizing that they're not unique in their situation or their misunderstanding of of the information that they're being provided. So, having a bunch of patients who are coming off the waiting list around the same time in a room together and presenting some basic uh, oral health information about how many different food products contain sugar, for example, mm-hmm. um, is is part of our experiment. And then we provide a survey at the same time to mm-hmm. then start to individually track where our, the individual patients are at. So that by the time they come to their first examination appointment, which would be one-on-one with a clinician, mm-hmm. that we know that they've already had access to some basic new health information. And we've got a record of where they're at in terms of their goals of treatment, what they're con- Concerns are what their current habits are and their readiness to change
2: mm.
0: and then there's also like the oral health educator and yeah yeah so I think I've heard that they've been using those at Richmond and yes yeah so is that another aspect to the
1: Absolutely. And in fact, the um, information sessions, the introductory sessions, were developed collaboratively with a sort of co-design approach, buzzword co-design, you know, involving consumers in everything we do. Um, So we had consumers and clinicians at every level. So the dentist, the oral health therapists, and the oral health educators with the patients all developing these sessions. And actually the, the oral health educators are the ones that present them. So all the information that's provided is within the scope of the oral health educators who are our dental assistants that have extra hmm. qualifications, a certificate for in that oral health education.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, how would the funding be based? So, would there be like questionnaires to judge like patients, like education level, and would improving education be like one of the criteria for funding, or how would it work with the funding? We've
2: definitely, yeah,
1: we've definitely been trying to increase the value that our preventative item codes have in terms of DWAS as an incentive for clinicians to use those item codes more. Oh, because similarly, like,
0: yeah, instruction. Yeah. And yeah. Advice.
1: And diet advice. Exactly. Yeah. Smoking cessation. Because the same is in the private sector. If you don't get any rebate from a, a private insurer on those items, what's what incentivizes you to do it? It, mm. you know, it you're you're virtually using your time unpaid, unless you're willing to charge the patient out of pocket, but because that's not sort of socially common. I don't, I don't think it's socially acceptable to be charging. Patients don't want to pay $50 to be told that yeah. they're eating too much sugar, you know? Yeah. 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 But um, if the private insurers don't provide a rebate for that, then there's no incentive, I guess, for the clinicians to be pushing those preventative interventions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's mm. one aspect of the funding is in public dental, having those item codes as yeah. getting like more DWA, And then
2: yeah.
0: also, can you look at, it is can be a bit challenging sometimes looking at the preventative, like effect of the new system mm. because it could take like a few years to get yeah. results in reducing decay and missing teeth and things like that. That's so exactly that's, right. How do you and, get yeah. to that challenge?
1: I mean, what's complicated about that, too, is whether we're talking about the, the public health stats a, on a population-wide level, sort of the epidemiological measures of successful treatment through the public sector versus an individual measurement of, do, did this person improve their health by going through the public sector Course of care. And I think that speaks to the limitations of the popular measurements that we use. Mm. You know, DMFT is a unidirectional measure, it only ever gets worse over time. So, how do you, the only way to demonstrate that things are improving are with different demographics of ages that are going through the system over long periods of time, as, as you say. Okay. And we don't have very good links to show the impact that access to professional oral health services has on reducing DMFT. Mm-hmm. So, what I mean, what we know about what causes dental disease is that there's so many factors from the tooth level to the family level and education and socioeconomic you know, influences. And so if,
0: of like a lot of sugar and like drink companies.
1: Exactly. If, yeah. if access to, to services only can be attributed to 10% of what someone's oral health measure is, hmm. then we're only going to see 10% change as a result of a model of care in the population's
0: oral health statistics sort of thing. Might be more effective looking at individuals and their improvement over time in terms of like their motivation and the education that they're at.
1: I think you definitely want to be able to reflect improvement in at both levels. You know, you have to be able to demonstrate that this person benefited from a course of care in the public sector hmm. or in the private yeah. sector, whatever the case may be. But you also want to be able to demonstrate that you know, the however many millions of dollars the government is putting into public funding, public dental funding, is having an effect on, at a population level as well. Cool. Mm. It's complex, It's but yeah. it is it's important, you know. Yes. Yeah. I think another aspect of wanting to go from private to public and then from public practice to public policy mm. what is the desire to have the biggest impact. Yes, Because I think you get a bit or I I got a bit frustrated thinking I'm I'm working so hard. I'm putting so much energy in trying to improve my patient's health. Mm. But I can only ever sort of do that one patient at a time. And I want to have a bigger effect on a bigger scale. I felt like I could maybe have a bigger impact if I worked at a policy level.
0: Yes. And then so you've been working with the ADABB as the policy and research manager so how's it over there
1: oh it's so great I just had um, six months in the new role and while my title is policy and research I'm also part of the team that does the predominant amount of advocacy and health promotion work as well Mm -hmm. so that spectrum of policy research health promotion and advocacy is very varied if that makes sense and uh, and uh, it's very stimulating for me to have yeah, oversight out of all these activities on, on, in all those different areas of dental practice and I feel privileged to be uh, a clinician and to I, I feel very uh, empowered to have influence in this current role which is feeling really good
0: yeah. for me. you can make yeah. a really big impact on a lot of people and so, I hope so. yeah, and also, how do you integrate different health professionals? Yeah, talking about like looking at sharing of medical records. Yeah, yeah.
1: I did some work around my thirtieth birthday in Central Australia, an organization called um, Rock, the Remote Area Health Corps, and I highly recommend that experience for all dental clinicians. I, I know in our profession, we have a fairly good attitude towards volunteer work and pro bono work. And I think a lot of dentists work, do volunteer work overseas, Mm -hmm. but I would definitely encourage people to focus on, you know, sort of our own backyard in terms of uh, areas that need a lot more support. And Central Australia was challenging in, in so many ways, but my favorite thing about practicing in central Australia was that there is very good use of my health record as a shared medical record that all the health Mm. professionals in any given community use and have oversight of. And it was just incredibly helpful for me. And, you know, so many challenges about working in central Australia, including language barrier, Mm. you know, lots of the patients that I was seeing didn't speak, English, had hardly any English at all. And some of them, again, the most complex medical circumstances that I've ever come across in my life. And so that combination of a significant language barrier without um, the support of a translator uh, really relied heavily on the computer and health record uh, to, to, to be across what someone's medical situation was. And that's what really helped me um, see in practice what I figured the theoretically shared oversight over a medical record would have so many benefits, but I was really able to see how that worked in practice during my time in Central Australia. And I'm a a very strong proponent of uptake in use of my health record by dentists and other health professionals so that we can communicate better um, about patient care
0: yeah i do find that there's often older patients and then they're taking a lot of medications and then they can't remember all the medications exactly and and the exact dose and it would be easier if there was some online system that you can easily access
1: for sure and even things as simple as diabetes management you know i'm i'm teaching Bachelor of Oral Health students at University of Melbourne at the moment, and they're trying to get a handle on what constitutes well-controlled diabetes versus poorly controlled diabetes. And when your patient can't tell you about the blood glucose levels, or they're not measuring their own blood glucose levels, or they don't know what an HBA1C is, it's quite hard to support the student in learning and understanding those uh, details if they don't have access to those details and the only way we have of communicating with other health professionals is virtually letter writing and you know speaking of letter writing there's an item code that doesn't have any activity
2: yeah
1: you know associated with it and you don't charge a patient to write a letter to their doctor but you know so the incentives of of that interprofessional communication and collaboration are could be better for sure yeah. Whereas if you have oversight over the patient's medical record and you can see what their HBA1C results are going back the last five
0: years, it's so convenient. Mm. So currently I think there is a system where people can share like the medical records mm. and then how does that work and how do professionals and patients like get involved with that?
1: They, I think one of the, the reasons why my health record has not had very good uptake in mm. Australia is because there's a lack of confidence in the security of the information.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and people have I think the general public has uh, reservations about sharing sensitive health information. Mm. And I think that the people who administer My Health Record as a program and as a record need need to do more to promote um, and alleviate people's concerns about that. And I don't feel that the advantages of using a shared health record have been very heavily promoted. And it's only because of my experience in central Australia that I feel like I understand the benefits, you know? Yeah. Um, and as clinicians, we can register with the My Health Record system to yeah. have access over our patients. Okay. Uh, cool. The patients that we that are signed up and using yeah. My Health Record, we can have access
0: to those records if we We can have we a want. link in the show notes below. If, uh, yeah, let's do that. Very That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. And for patients who are interested in being able to share health information with other health professionals to provide really good quality care, then what can they do?
1: Oh, I'm very much in support of patients trying to log on and trying to figure out how to access their own medical records. But a word of warning, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I tried to do it myself to get my own record sort of uh, up and running. And it's complicated. I had to call Medicare and be on the phone waiting for ages there were multiple logins with multiple passwords and the information's not set out all that clearly so you do have to have not only good health literacy but good technological literacy to mm. to figure it out but yeah, the more we can help
0: and have some steps to make it a bit easier
1: that would be a really good idea too or just advising people to ask for help from their more technological savvy family mm. and friends or support workers if, if they're available to yep. to get that up and running for the benefit of themselves and their health professional care team
0: yeah because it's yeah so important when people are taking all these medications we don't know about and then if they need like treatments there could be a lot of harmful effects and then if you just have it all in the one system it'll be yeah much better they'll provide get much better care
2: I think
1: often people don't uh, uh, general public make assumptions about what information is relevant to a dentist and what's Mm -hmm. not. And so even things like mental health, like
2: Mm. I think,
1: I think patients would think, Oh, what does my dentist need to know about my mental health? Of course, not understanding the side effects of common mental health um, medications have on saliva, which is obviously a risk factor for dental decay and things like that. Not to mention people's different life priorities you know if they've got unstable mental health that means that they're constantly worried about you know family dynamics at home and harm you know a safe and harmonious living situation being told to floss every day is just not high on the priority list for someone with unstable mental health but if they don't think to share that with the mental with the dental clinician Mm -hmm. how are we to know and it's a good example of information that would be helpful for us to have access to without necessarily needing to probe with a patient, and perhaps making them feel uncomfortable during our if if rapport is not not super well developed at that point in the care
0: yeah, journey. We should really have yeah a holistic approach, and yeah, really all the body is like connected, and if we're working mm-hmm. on as dentists then it's really connected with the rest of the body there's a whole lot of conditions which can affect the mouth and then the mouth can affect the rest of the body so yep yep sounds like a great idea having it all in the one place Mm. health and then also yeah how do you focus on prevention of health problems I think I heard before that you've been a bit of a sweet tooth in the past oh yes
1: I had, yeah, I've always been a sugar fiend, actually, yeah. my whole life. My first job when I graduated from university um, was at a small practice where the lead clinician had every single patient using an electric toothbrush and a water flosser, mm-hmm. and I swear I did not see caries for for six months after graduating uni. Just everyone had fantastic. Oral hygiene wow. and I started to get the sense that it didn't really matter what your diet was doing if you mm. kept your teeth very clean then mm. you could mitigate that risk and so for a while I was peddling this philosophy that oh eat whatever you want just clean your teeth well afterwards and that yeah. that was my own personal approach to my oral health mm. um, which surprisingly I have very low dmft considering how much mm. sugar I've consumed over my life yeah Uh, And it wasn't um, until I moved back into the public sector that I sort of realized that that wasn't appropriate advice for everyone. I guess Mm -hmm. Um, in hindsight, I was working in a very high socioeconomic area at the time. And what I know about the social determinants of health, there are obviously a lot of other things other than someone's sugar consumption and how well they were taking care of their teeth that was affecting oral health. So uh, then uh, my my younger brother's a smoker. And that's something that's always that I've always found very challenging to think about because we were raised, um, both of us, very with very strong messages, negative messages about tobacco and about smoking. And I mm. just couldn't understand why my younger brother, knowing what we knew about how bad cigarettes are, would still choose to smoke. And then as time went on, and I would challenge him more and more about why don't you stop? And why haven't you quit? And don't you care about your health? He started to turn around on me. Well, what about your sugar addiction? And I was very defensive about that for a long time. But the more I thought about it, and the more research I did into um, addiction and overcoming addiction, I realized, that yeah, my sugar addiction is a very real thing. You know, there was a popularity of sugar free diets there for a while that lots of my friends were experimenting with. And the idea of going without sugar for me is, it sounds like an impossibility to me with mm. my relationship with sugar. So the question how do we focus on prevention? I think get, being non judgmental when it comes to different people's priorities and things that, some people find hard that other people don't find you know some people find only smoking one cigarette a day easily or a week mm-hmm. easy and some people the idea of quitting smoking is an impossibility the same is to me the idea of giving up sugar entirely mm-hmm. seems like yeah, an impossibility yeah. Yeah. i think being a little bit gentle and gentle and non-judgmental about what people find easy and what people find hard is a good place to
0: start yeah so then you <laughs> like um gradually look gradually reduce sugar
1: yeah and yeah. I, i'm lucky in that i you know so well educated from mm-hmm. the dental degree to know what i can do what protective actions i can take to mitigate the risk that i introduced to yeah. my own oral health by yeah. consuming sugar. So I'm quite good at like chewing a piece of sugar-free gum after I've oh, had yes. a sugary snack. Uh,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Or using, uh, it was a gift from my students one year, um, a, a couple of tubes of Nutrafluor toothpaste because they uh, knew what a what a sweet tooth uh, I had and they yeah. thought that they'd implement the the teaching that we'd gone through through the course of the year yeah. and wanted to help me save my teeth and <laughs> things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've got the strategies. I drink yeah. a ton of tap water.
0: Oh, yes, good. You know,
1: and things like that. So I know what to do. Yeah. But, good. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I I admit I'm also, yeah, a sweet tooth and I've had a ton of sugar.
1: And what do you do to mitigate your personal risk of
0: yeah, so caries? I feel like it's something where you can't just, like, snap your fingers and then just immediately quit sugar. It's something that can be very difficult. Like, you have a lot of strong cravings. And so I find it's something that... Usually if a patient is having like maybe four teaspoons of sugar in their coffee, then um, we'll ask them like, oh, do you think you could um, go down to three teaspoons of sugar um, next week? And then maybe you might see them like a few months later and then look at reducing further. And then I feel like it's much easier just taking like gradual steps and then it doesn't um, impact them too much and they find that easier.
1: Yeah, definitely. And in terms of health psychology, it's also very interesting to me that we rely on these self-reported
0: mm.
1: measures of improvement, right? Like mm. if you if you had a patient who had four teaspoons of sugar per coffee mm. and you said, do you think you could cut down to three? And they said, yeah, I'll give that a go. And mm. you saw them a few months later, you know, you ask them again and they may tell you that they've reduced even mm. if they haven't reduced mm. or, you know, how, how that interaction between professional and patient works is very much on trust and openness and honesty. And, you know, we make the assumptions as clinicians that our patients are being totally transparent with us, but there's definitely incentives where uh, people try and protect themselves from judgment by being dishonest about their activities or their improvements because they want to please they want to keep you as their professional sort of happy and they want to be a good patient
0: Mm.
1: and they don't want to disappoint and things like that so there's a lot of
0: Yeah. yeah I think it's a lot about finding what their education level is at and if they are aware of the damages of having a lot of sugar whether with their teeth or whether with diabetes or other things and then also looking at yeah. What level of motivation they're at if they and where their motivations are, like whether they want to um, be healthy for their kids and they want to like live long. Or yeah, whatever it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And their beliefs about oral health and its importance, you know, in the older generations where their parents had full dentures at, from a young <clears> age. They or they might have grown up in an unfluoridated area, or sort of. I'm sure you've heard, "quote I've always had problems with my teeth." Unquote. You know, people mm. who believe that they're that the fate fates have decided that they're always going to have trouble with their teeth sort of feel disempowered or like they've got an external locus of control, where it doesn't matter what they do with their behavior, their teeth are going to be shot anyway. Yeah. You know, and and that sort of fatalistic. Mm approach versus helping patients feel empowered to take responsibility and to make changes that are going to have an effect. And, and the patients need to value that effect that we're peddling. There's a lot of psychology wrapped up in that.
0: And I think it's good to ask them, ask the patient what level they're at, what stage they're at in terms of reducing the sugar. And then, yeah, also looking at what they think they can do as like the first step. Yeah. Yeah
1: yeah that self-determined ambition Mm. isn't it like asking them to make their own goals yeah that's a really good Mm. strategy
0: because yeah I think for me something which motivated me was I was staying with a grandmother for three months in the country while working Mm. Mm. and yeah she said that her partner had died with complications related to diabetes and then she was about to die as well and then she didn't have any sugar in the house and then i was thinking oh if i keep eating all this sugar then yeah i could die from like diabetes and then also another housemate um his father a leg amputated and went blind in the space of a few years from complications with diabetes and then a lot of people they don't realize that these terrible things like could happen if they do consume like crazy amounts of sugar or whatever the behavior is and so i think it's that you hear like a lot of marketing of like softening companies, and it seems like it's a cool thing to do. But sometimes mm. you don't know about all the consequences until it's too late. So I think it's really good to make people aware of the consequences, so then they can like live your happy lives without like regret. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's brutal. It's and alcohol too in our culture. I think yeah. there's quite a bit on Netflix and things, you know, the truth about alcohol and um, addiction, which is an Australian sort of Alcoholics Anonymous panel or, um, you know, people that are getting together and tr- and talking and trying to raise awareness about the problems that we have with the social acceptability of consuming so much alcohol mm. when we know how bad it is. And it's very interesting to look at those public health measures like plain packaging on tobacco mm. and, and the increasing, taxes on alcohol and discussions about the potential of putting on a sugar tax as well. Mm. You know, it's, it's good, it's cool to see the research and the implications of major public policy decisions like that on people's behavior. Although there is evidence to show that things like taxing tobacco, taxing alcohol and taxing sugar often affect the people in the top socioeconomic banned most so the people who well educated and have the supports around are find it the easiest to make the change Mm. which actually over time increases the disparity of health between Mm. our top socioeconomic group and the lower socioeconomic groups so Mm. it doesn't actually have the effect on the people who are suffering the most Mm. from those those activities
0: okay And that's why you'll introduce the value-based healthcare system and then educate a lot of the people.
2: (laughs) Well, we've
1: got a lot of figuring out to do about what drives behaviour. And actually, one of the other things I wanted to put in the show notes was the book Mm -hmm. Nudge, which is written by a behavioural economist about the influences on health-related behaviours and making Mm -hmm. health-related decisions there's a lot that is um, actually I was going to draw from another example from central Australia about tap water being of very poor quality in mm-hmm. some of the remote communities and people have to buy bottled water if they want to consume water and Coke is cheaper than water in some parts of wow. Australia. Like that's shocking and terrible to me, but some of the more progressive or health conscious communities have chosen to put water at the front of the store and Coke at the back of the store Mm -hmm. or water at eye level and Coke more hidden. And sort of those changes, which can happen, you know, in, in any given community can have huge amount of benefit that doesn't get measured or doesn't get captured. Yeah. If we're not putting in um, a concerted effort to measure it. Mm.
0: And what is the nudge effect? And that book about nudge?
1: I guess nudge is sort of the things that we can do to help. Okay, so the book, which I'm not all the way through yet, I might um, disclaim. (laughs) The book talks about the differing attitude towards autonomy and independence in Mm -hmm. decisions, which I think can be... Illustrated by the American culture, you know, the American mm. culture developed from a desire to escape the the government and the control of the hierarchy in mm. the United Kingdom and people wanting to make their own way in the world and make their own decisions and be independent yep. and d- make their own luck. And I think that that culture has continued over many generations and mm. people are very resistant to being told what to do. Yeah. And we, we all value a, a degree of independence and, and things. But the, book, the argument the book is making is that some degree of sort of a, I forget the term they use. It's like a paternal, paternal democracy or something like that, where they are explaining that as, using the information we have from subject matter expertise to help guide decisions in a way that's going to benefit the individual and the society mm. are not compromising people's ability to make their own decisions, but they are helping people to make healthy decisions easier. Mm. For example, putting water at the front of the store and Coke at the back of the store mm. is a nudge. That's yes. a nudge. It's a, It's almost subconscious, but mm. it, I mean, it's not difficult to make it more conscious and it's things like um, food at the tuck shop in a school Mm -hmm. as well it's like not putting the candy and the cakes and the donuts and the slices like right in your face at the front when you go and it's the only thing you see you know put those things at the back put the healthier stuff further forward and you'll increase the um, number of kids who are choosing healthy foods
0: and yeah, With when that I, when little it, lunch. yeah. When I went to the canteen, I remember like all the sugary things were much cheaper. So if you didn't have much yeah. money, you just go for that. And then the healthy exactly. things were like double the price. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And I think we could do better to change that around to help yeah. encourage. And you're not removing anybody's choice that yeah. way or or whatever argument you have about the economics of it being, oh, well, it's cheaper to buy a donut than an apple. So I'm going to buy a donut. You're limiting someone's choice in that sense by preventing them from making a healthy choice if they can only afford an unhealthy choice mm. same with you know the family it's it's cheaper to feed a family at mcdonald's than it is with fresh food and a home-cooked meal like what does mm. that say about our our focus on on the importance of health mm. it reflects badly doesn't it mm.
0: So yeah, there's some room for improvement with uh, the <laughs> nudge effect and changing yeah. the environment to make it an environment where we w- we're more likely to make healthy choices. Yeah, even if we're very independent and strong-minded, then
1: <laughs> or yeah. addicted to sugar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. good. And then, so with the value-based health system, so in the public dental, so what stage are we at in terms of are we like testing it out at the moment, or is there a, a date? it's it's going to get started? Mm.
1: No date. Um, lots of testing happening yeah. at the moment. So uh, I think across the state, more and more agencies are utilizing the introductory system to try mm. and engage with patients early on in the journey to start making those health-related behavior changes so that by the time you come to a one-on-one face-to-face appointment in the clinical setting, mm. we're ready to do treatment. And so we're... Getting the work done that needs to be done in the chair and saving uh, the opportunity for preventative interventions Mm. to circumstances where we don't necessarily have to be one-on-one in the dental clinic, in the dental chair. And Mm. so therefore keeping the chair free for the work that only can be done in the chair Mm. and hoping that people are already starting to make health-related behavior changes before they get to the treatment phase. And I mean, that's all about promoting or sort of what we're taught in school is the in dental school is the Mm. ideal order of a treatment plan. And, you know, you have your disease control as a phase before your definitive treatment is provided. Mm. But if you're trying to get as many people through a public system as fast as possible, when do you have an opportunity to focus on disease control if you're also trying to get everything about their definitive care done at the same time as well Mm. so it's sort of making almost like nudge theory making Mm. it easier for clinicians to choose the sort of the right way or the best way of doing things because you've set up the system Mm. to support that so that we are a attacking the disease control stuff before we get to the definitive phase and Mm. trying to align what we're teaching in dental schools with the way practice gets um but you know and care gets delivered in the real world
0: Mm. yeah i'm seeing more and more oral health educators around to educated patients and diabetes educators and yeah Yeah. that
1: I mean we talked a little bit about interprofessional collaboration but when you have someone come in who's got uncontrolled diabetes are you better off doing all their periodontal therapy or are you better off using that same funding to pay for them to go see a diabetes educator and get that under control because ultimately that's going to have just as much an impact on their periodontal condition as Doing periodontal treatment without diabetes management as well. So, Mm. do you use oral health educators in private practice? Do you have anybody at your clinic who's trained in that cert for?
0: Yeah. So, in private practice, then, yeah, I work at three different clinics, and I do like taking photos and having a chat with the patient at the end after assessing their teeth and asking them all the questions about motivations and their habits, and then yeah I find that's really good because I show Mm. them yeah like what can happen like if they keep on this trajectory if they keep eating all this sugar then they could like their holes will get bigger they could lose teeth or with gum disease if they keep smoking and then look at then often they'll I'll gauge what level of motivation they're at so they might say oh what can I do to prevent that and then it seems like they're a bit more motivated Mm. and then yeah give them tips on prevention But also, Mm. at one of the clinics, we've been looking at educating our nurses Mm -hmm. about oral hygiene and diet and things like that. So then that means that we can be doing the treatment plan while they'll be speaking to the patient. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's a
1: very effective use of time, which is Mm. exactly what we're trying to set up in the public sector as well.
0: Mm. Good. Mm. And then what is your vision for the future of dental health?
1: I definitely
0: anticipate a funding model.
1: mm, I anticipate that we're going to start to see more data and data is going to be key moving forward. More data about what interventions lead to what outcomes. Mm. So at the moment, a lot of our activity codes are not linked with specific diagnoses that we record. We don't record diagnoses the same way that we record interventions, and we we all use sort of dentograms, odontograms, oh. and and have data that's captured, you know, on a in a diagrammatic sense that we can pull data from. But one of the complexities with dentistry is that we use the term caries to describe Mm. the disease process, as well as the manifestations of uncontrolled disease. Mm. So I often think of this example with diabetes. If someone has to have a leg amputated because their diabetes has been so poorly controlled for so long, Mm -hmm. they develop gangrene. But imagine if, you know, so an amputation is a way to manage gangrene. Mm. You don't manage diabetes by performing an amputation. Yeah which is the same in the mouth in that, you know, when you have decay, a decay hole caries, you manage that carious lesion by amputating that part of the tooth structure and replacing Mm. it with a prosthetic filling, Mm. but you're not managing caries, the disease by placing a filling. Yeah. You're only managing the the manifestations of that uncontrolled disease. So
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. So lots of times on a dental chart, the best we could do at pulling data about the diagnoses that we're making is when we've charted caries on the odontogram, Mm. but that's not necessarily capturing everybody who has a carious disease process going on in their mouth.
2: Mm. That's
1: only capturing the people that have like extensive, like so far gone that they require an amputation of part of their tooth. So I think, I hope that over time we get better at making Uh, making use of the diagnostic codes. And there are a number of internationally recognized diagnostic coding systems so that we have data on, this is the diagnosis. These are all the different patients that received all these different combinations of interventions, and then look long-term, what was the outcome for those patients over time? So the patients that always Um, received oral hygiene instruction had a 20% higher chance of keeping their teeth over 10 years than those Mm. that didn't receive that item code and things like that, where at the moment, when we talk about evidence-based dentistry, we're relying very much on controlled sort of random randomized clinical trials or um, observations of certain groups of therapies or patients over time. And there's it's mm. quite small sample sizes in a lot of the dental research that that we have so it'd be great to use big data on a big scale globally to talk about what works and what doesn't work in dentistry to achieve what it is that we're trying to achieve
2: mm.
0: and then once we have like data on interventions like oral hygiene instruction or dietary advice and if it's very effective then that could be part of a funding-based model yeah yeah it's we're seeing a really good significant effect then the funding if it keeps improving then the clinic will get like funded more.
2: yep
1: and not just data from our dental software either but like I was talking about the shared medical record with data from all aspects of a patient's Mm -hmm. health so we can see that patients who have diabetes and periodontal disease are you know how much more percent likely to recover if you've managed their diabetes before their perio disease or whatnot and whatnot. These patients with mental health issues been on this mental health medication are more likely to suffer from the result of a dry mouth, unless they've also seen a dietitian at the same mm. time and, you know, mm. all things like that.
0: Wow. That's really cool. So There's
1: a lot, there's a lot of places we're, we're going to go in health. I think.
0: Yeah, it's really like groundbreaking work in dental and then also in all of health. And yeah, Yeah. amazing work to integrate the different health professionals and focusing on prevention and policy and making a big difference to a lot of people.
1: Thanks, Marcus. Sometimes it feels like we should be further along this journey than we are. But, you know, slowly, slowly, and and I guess we'll get there eventually. We're all just doing the best we can, aren't we?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful speaking with you today, Dr. Katie.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in your show. And yeah, it's been great chatting.
0: And yeah, I look forward to more of the policies and the research and things that you're up to. Right. Stay tuned. Yeah, good. <laughs> and then we'll have like a lot of links below in the show notes to some of the health systems to integrate different health professionals and also like some um, resources. So you can have a look below and enjoy. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Katie. I hope you enjoyed the show. For show notes and to keep up to date with the latest, follow the Health Network podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Please consider leaving us a review and share if you know someone that could benefit from this. Let's unite health professionals and prevent health problems.